We are going to have a good time this morning. I love this little chunk of Revelation. Uh, it's very instructive, and we'll get to see a wonderful picture unfold of Jesus as our great high priest. So this morning, you can open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1, still, verse 10, and we'll see how far we get through this. I want to back up to verse 9 before we take on verse 10. Verse 9 reads, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. This phrase, I, John, is used three times in this book of Revelation, the last two being found very close to the end. The Old Testament's apocalyptic writer, Daniel, uses the phrase, I, Daniel, three times in the book that bears his name, Daniel. You'll find those in Daniel 7, 28, 9, 2, and 10, 2. And I don't know what to make of that specifically. I'll let you dig into that and see what you can come up with. But it's interesting, nonetheless, both the New Testament and Old Testament's apocalyptic writers use the phrase, I, John, I, Daniel. So we see from verse 9 that John is equating himself with those he's writing to. He's not calling himself an apostle. You know, I'm the oldest living apostle. I am far above anything you could ever hope to be. That's not what he does. He equates himself with them. He's their companion, their brother in the tribulation, the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. He's writing and he's receiving this vision from the island that is called Patmos for the word of God. So he was sent there because of his witness for Christ, because of his steadfastness in the word of God. But he was also sent there for the purpose of receiving the word of God, which we find in his vision in Revelation. And for the testimony of Jesus Christ. He says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Now, John says in verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now, the question arises, was John simply saying that he was Spirit-filled on Sunday? I don't think that there is a better case to be made for that interpretation than the other that I will share with you. He was, John, the oldest apostle of Christ. You know, I would hope that he was spirit-filled on Sunday. I would hope that he was spirit-filled every other day of the week as well. Um, I don't think that that is actually what he's saying. There are, however, competent commentators and scholars who take this view, Spirit-filled on Sunday, but there are also plenty who think that it speaks to more than that. He says, I was in the Spirit. The Greek word for in is locative, 
That means it denotes location or position. The word was can be translated became. And there's no definite article attached to spirit. And I say all that to say that it can read as I became in the sphere of spirit. So this is talking about something completely different than I was spirit-filled on Sunday. This makes it sound like John was taken in spirit by the Holy Spirit to the Lord's day. The weast renders this verse as, I entered into a different experience in the sphere of the spirit, his absolute control, on the Lord's day. And this rendering brings out some of those same constructs that I had just mentioned. And this view asserts that John was taken in spirit forward in time to the infamous day of the Lord to witness the events that unfold. And the day of the Lord is simply this time period when God will again assert his control over the world. And this time period begins with the rapture, when God supernaturally takes his church off the earth. Now, there are four times the phrase in the spirit are used in Revelation. So we'll go through these four times. The first is here in Revelation 1.10. And he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. So he was carried to the day of the Lord. The second instance is Revelation 4.2. He says, immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne. So in this instance, he was carried in the spirit to the throne room in heaven. The third instance is Revelation 17.3. It reads, so he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. So in this instance, he was carried away to the wilderness. The fourth instance is in Revelation 21, verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. So in this last instance, he was carried to a mountain. And in each of these instances, um, he is taken to a different location, a different sphere of experience. And I think that that is consistent with what we see in the rest of the book. If you happen to care what I think, um, I do tend to go with, he was taken in spirit to the day of the Lord. But we do see John using a slightly different phrasing from other New Testament writers for this day of the Lord. He says, the Lord's day, instead of the common phrase, the day of the Lord. And the Lord's day is not actually used to talk about Sunday, the first day of the week, until around AD 200. We don't have any written records from before then. Now, that is, unless John is actually saying that here. And in which case, this would be the first instance of the Lord's Day being used for Sunday. You can come to your own conclusion there. Um, As in all things, this and everything else that I say 
Search it out for yourself. Acts 17.11, the Bereans were more noble because they heard with open ears, but they also went back to the scripture and searched it to find out if the things were so. So regardless of which interpretation for this you go with, it will not affect our fellowship. He said, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. Now, the voice was as of a trumpet. He is not saying that he heard a trumpet, but this big booming voice that was as a trumpet. And we'll see more figures of speech like this, similes specifically, later on in this text we'll look at this morning. Verse 11, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. So this is this booming voice speaking. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. In Isaiah 44, 6, God refers to himself as the first and the last. Jesus is now calling himself the first and the last effectively equating himself with God. And so we have these two persons of the Trinity um, being declared equal. And we've seen this before, even in the short passage that we've already gone through in Revelation. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. So this whole book of Revelation was written out and a copy of it was sent to each of these seven churches that are listed. Now, Josh, if you can pull up that map for us. We've got here the area of Asia Minor, and this would be modern-day Turkey right here. And I've circled in red, if you can see it, all of the cities of these churches. So the list starts out in the southwest with Ephesus, and it makes a clockwise pattern through Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, and ends with Laodicea there. Uh, So that's just to give you an idea of where we're talking about. Patmos is a little island right here off the coast about 20 miles off the coast from Ephesus. So Patmos is where John was when he receives this vision, and these are all the churches uh, that he was instructed to write to. Now, we know that John spent at least some time pastoring the church at Ephesus, and he had some oversight over the rest of these churches as well. But as we look at these churches and where they are on the map, it leads to a pressing question. Why these seven? Why did Jesus choose these seven churches to receive the revelation, for one, and to receive a personal epistle or letter from himself? Because that's really what happens here. Why these seven churches? And I'm going to leave you on a bit of a cliffhanger there for next time because I want you to see if you can figure it out. I want you to dig and see if you can figure out why not the church at Colossae? 
It's right there by Laodicea, Hierapolis. It's right there. Why not those churches? There are several distinct reasons that we'll get to. But I want you to think about that and just jot down your response in your Bible or your notes, wherever you'll have it for next week. And I also want to put a few things on your mind so that you'll be ready for next time when we examine the letter to the church of Ephesus. So we're going to switch gears into looking at these letters. We have the churches listed out here, but we find seven design elements in each of these letters that Christ writes to the churches. So we'll go through those, and I'd like you to jot these down in a place that you'll have it for next time. The first design element in these letters is simply the name of the church. And so we see the name of the church. In that, there's actually important information contained about the church. And we'll pull that out as we go through each of these letters. The second design element is the title that Christ uses for himself. And that will be informative for a couple reasons. The third design element is the commendation from Christ. These are the things that y'all did good at. The fourth is the condemnation or concern that Christ had, and it's what you need to work on. The fifth is an exhortation. The sixth is a promise to the overcomer. And finally, the seventh design element is his clothes. It's in every one of these seven letters, and it's he that has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And that is contained in each one of these seven letters. So I'll go through them real quick again, make sure you got it down. The name of the church, the title that Christ uses of himself, the commendation, the condemnation, the exhortation, the promise to the overcomer, and the closing remark, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, when we finish writing that down, I want you to jot down the four levels of application that we can pull from these letters to the churches. Now, of course, these churches were real congregations in a real place at a real time. So we have this first level of application in the local church, and that's what I want you to jot down, local application. Each one of these congregations had real problems, and the letters address those real problems. Um, I want to bring to your attention William Ramsey. William Ramsey conducted an extensive study on these actual churches from history. And it may be worth checking out for a deeper dive into the history behind these congregations. His book is titled The Letters to the Seven Churches. And Colin Himmer is a more modern scholar. I think he wrote his book around 1990. And he built on a lot of what Ramsey did in his history. And Colin Himmer's book is titled The Letters to the Seven Churches of Asia in Their Local Setting. So check those out if you want more local 
insight into these letters. Um, of course, we'll be pulling out some of that as we move through them individually. The second level of application, these letters are actually admonitory to all churches. So they can be applied to the universal church, the body of believers. All seven letters were sent to all seven churches. And in each letter sits that phrase that we mentioned as the close. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Plural. Churches is plural. So not just he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to your church, but to the churches. They were not only supposed to hear what the Spirit had for their church, but to all the rest of the churches as well. And this seems to point to the fact that all of these letters are universally applicable to churches. That is, they're meant for more than just the congregation they're addressed to. There are lessons here to be learned by churches in general. And every congregation has components of each of these letters. You can look at certain congregations and say, oh, they're... 50% Laodicean, 30% Thyatiran, you know, uh, however many percentages remain, something else. And so you can look at congregations and see that. The third level of application is personal. Each one of us can gain instruction from these letters personally. They are not only written to these churches, they're not only written to all of churches, they are written to you. Who has an earlobe? Grab your right hand. Grab your earlobe. If you have an ear, these letters are written to you. He who has an ear, let him hear. And I'm being facetious, of course, but you won't forget now that these letters are written to you. We shouldn't have the attitude of sitting back in our chairs, studying these the scholar's view, studying them just as history. Because the Spirit has something to say to you in these letters. We're not just studying something that only applied to believers 1,900 years ago. But we can look to ourselves, and we certainly will glean something from the text The fourth and final level of application is prophetic. Now, I suggest that you take this skeptically at first. Okay, don't believe anything I say. But with further investigation, I think that you'll be sufficiently convinced that these letters, in their given order, and that's important, the order that they're in, they serve as a prophetic outline of roughly 2,000 years of church history. And this is an interesting way to look at it. This is admittedly partly speculation. Um, There's not a scripture that I'm aware of that specifically says these are prophetic. They outline church history. But you can draw your own conclusion as we move along It's also worth noting that if the letters were in any other order than what they're actually given in, this prophetic piece wouldn't work. 
it would be all messed up and jumbled. But in the order that Christ gives these churches, it does work. And I'll give you a brief outline of this position in case you want to study it further. Ephesus represents the apostolic church from AD 30 to 100. Smyrna represents the persecuted church from AD 100 to 313. Pergamos represents the state church, AD 313 to 590. Thyatira, the papal church, 590 to 1517. Sardis, the reformed church, 1517 to 1790. Philadelphia, the missionary church, 1730 to 1900, roughly. Laodicea, the apostate church, AD 1900 until the end, the rapture. Um, And I know you can't write all that down, but it'll be in the tape later this week. You'll notice that in the first three letters, the promise to the overcomer, remember one of these design elements, is in the postscript, the PS at the end. The last four letters contain the promise to the overcomer in the body of the letter. And I want you to hang on to that tidbit because we'll get to it later on in our study. Two of the letters have nothing good said about the church addressed. And two of the letters have nothing bad said about the church that they're addressed to. Interesting. But here's the important part. Every recipient was surprised at the grade on their report card. So the ones that thought they were doing good were not. And the ones that thought they were failing were actually doing quite well. And that's instructive to us because we can't be the ones to judge ourselves. We have skewed perceptions of ourselves. And the only one that can truly and justly judge the church is Jesus Christ. So let's not look to ourselves to judge how we're doing in the church, but let's let Jesus judge the church. Let's just simply see what Jesus has to say. And he has a lot to say in these seven letters. And speaking of Jesus judging his church, this is exactly the picture that we have painted in verses 12 through 16. So let's move on to verse 12. John writes, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. These golden lampstands remind us of the tabernacle. You remember in the holy place of the tabernacle, there was this lampstand. It had a single branch going straight up and six branches coming off of that straight branch. The picture there was six branches, six, the number of man, and plus one is seven, number of completion. And the whole thing points towards Christ. So you see, man is faulty. All of those branches of the menorah would not be 
functioning if it weren't for that one single vertical branch in the middle. Without Christ, the church, man, falls apart. It doesn't work. And we see that symbology in the tabernacle, but now these golden lampstands are all separate. They're all representing individual churches, congregations in this vision. And down in verse 20, we see Jesus actually explain to John that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands, which you saw, are the seven churches. So it's given to us directly by Jesus that these lampstands represent churches. Also, they weren't candles. Candles, first of all, weren't used for many more years after this was written. And secondly, candles are self-consuming. They burn themselves out. And that's not the picture that we have of the church. The picture of the church in the lampstand here is one that is fueled by oil. These lampstands would have had oil put into them, and they would have burned that oil, not self-consuming. If you're familiar with the symbol of oil in Scripture, you know that it represents the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is represented by oil in, in many places in Scripture. Now, this is significant because Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And when I leave, you are the light in the world, speaking to his church. So the menorah in the tabernacle pointed to Christ, and the lampstands in John's vision represent these individual churches that are being written to. Jesus tells him in verse 20 that the lampstands are the churches. And these lamps are sustained by oil, the church being sustained by the Holy Spirit. And this symbolism reaches much further than just the lampstands. But we'll see as we move through this vision that John has, we'll see that Jesus is painted here as our great high priest. And this also relating back to the tabernacle and the Levitical law. Verse 13, And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. So in the midst of these seven lampstands, John sees one like the Son of Man. So we have this image of Christ walking amongst his churches. Son of Man was Christ's favorite title for himself. He used it more than 80 times, just that we have recorded in the four Gospels. The Son of Man. It says he was clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. Christ is pictured as our great high priest. His garments are that of the high priest. With a long garment down to the feet and a golden band across his chest. Josephus states that priests were girded about the breasts. The ordinary custom was to wear a shorter tunic. 
And the garment would also usually be bound about the waist when one would go to work or do some other strenuous activity. Um, I believe it's First Peter when he writes, gird up the loins of your mind. And that just means get your mind ready for work. They would tie up their tunics when they were about to go to work. With the garment of our Lord at his feet and being gird about the chest, we see that he is comfortable in his position of authority. And this is exactly where he is right now. He is in a position of authority. The emphasis is on strength now, not service, like it was in his incarnation. Verse 14, his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. There's a contrast there between snow and fire. But more importantly, he says, like wool, like snow. So he doesn't have this weird, white, woolly afro going on. That's not exactly what he's saying. It's not his hair was wool, but it was white, like wool. The white hair speaks both of his eternality and his purity. Daniel 7.9 refers to God as the ancient of days. He is eternal. In the physical description of him in that same passage, it said that his garment was as white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. And now in Revelation, we see that the glorified Christ shares this same physical description that was given to God the Father in the Old Testament. This also points to their shared purity and eternality. Okay, so we have this beautiful picture. Revelation, again, is wrapping up things that were started earlier in Scripture. We don't see many, if any, new themes in Revelation, but they're all continuances and ends to themes that were already started. And his eyes like a flame of fire. Now, his eyes are not actually on fire, per se. This is another simile saying that his eyes were like a flame of fire. John is trying to explain in his faulty human language what he is seeing in a heavenly realm. There, you know, I joked a couple weeks ago that... Uh, Jesus didn't decide to give Paul this revelation because Paul, like his time in the third heaven, he would say, man, that was just too glorious for words, not even going to write it down. But Christ wanted this revelation written down. And so that may have gone into his decision-making process in giving this to John. But John tries to write it down, and he tries to explain what he sees using human language. And um, it's no fault of his if it isn't perfect. Um, But the Holy Spirit is communicating something to us in this simile. His eyes were like a flame of fire. This description speaks of his penetrating insight into the true and the total life of the church. So he sees everything. 
um, in the general sense, but also everything in the, the church. And this simile can also be seen as speaking of his righteous indignation against sin. And we see later in Revelation that these concepts of flaming eyes and indignation towards sin are connected. Uh, you can look at Revelation 19, 11, and 12. It's interesting to see uh, these eyes like fire also in pop culture. We see specific instances where our society has, I believe, probably pulled from Revelation. If you're familiar with the Marvel movies, you know who Heindel is. He's a guardian of the Bifrost. And all of this comes from Norse mythology. Um, but Heimdall is said to possess foreknowledge, which is interesting, and especially keen eyesight and keen hearing, piercing gaze. You see Heimdall in these movies, and he's depicted with these bright, glowing orange eyes. And he also passes his uh, physical trait of his eyes down to his son. So you see in the later movies, his son also has these eyes and his son also can see things, see everything. Just kind of interesting. Also, I'm told that the Lord of the Rings series has a flaming eye that watches over the land. And I'm not as familiar with that, but if you are, you probably know what I'm talking about. Um, so we see this idea of a piercing gaze in the, the simile of eyes like a flame of fire. And, you know, Jesus does not overlook wrongdoings. And I'm going to talk specifically about the church right now. He does not overlook wrongdoings in his church. He sees everything, and that's partly what gives him the right to judge justly because he has all knowledge and certainly all knowledge that's needed to make a just judgment. Now, verse 15, his feet were like fine brass as if refined in a furnace and his voice as the sound of many waters. His feet were like fine brass as if refined in a furnace. The picture here is his feet looking like brass that had been heated up to a glowing molten state, as if refined in a furnace. Brass, in scripture, we know is symbolic of judgment. We can see that from the brass serpent in the wilderness, from Numbers 21, all the way to the brass altar of the tabernacle and in other places. This brass altar that sat outside the entrance to the tabernacle represented Christ's work on earth. And this is where the Israelites would make their sin offerings to God. The altar was built from acacia wood and it was overlaid with bronze. It was fairly substantial too, sitting right outside the tabernacle. You couldn't miss it. And I think that was with a purpose. You could not walk into the tabernacle without noticing this structure. It was seven and a half feet square at the base and four and a half feet high, roughly. 
At each of the altar's four corners was a horn-like projection. And the utensils that were used by the priests to maintain this altar were also made of bronze, symbolic of judgment. The instructions that God gave for this brass altar also included a grating or a network of bronze that would be laid inside, uh, supposedly to hold the wood and or the sacrifice that would be placed in there to God. Two poles were used for carrying the altar. You know, this was supposed to be a portable design, and they too were overlaid with bronze and inserted into bronze rings at the altar's corners. You can see a description of the altar in Exodus 27. Bronze is harder than gold and silver. It is also better at withstanding heat than gold and silver. Now, it makes practical sense that this altar for burnt offerings would be made of a metal that was tolerant to heat. You know, practically, that's a good idea. But it's also symbolic. During his incarnation, Christ became the sacrifice for our sins. And he was the only one who possessed the power to endure the fire of God's holiness. Our sins being poured onto him, he suffered the wrath of God. And the brass suffered the heat from the fire that burned the sin offering. Only Christ could withstand the judgment of God for our sins. And this is coming back now to Revelation. This is the picture that we have here. The brass feet of our Lord and Savior. And his voice as the sound of many waters. It's as the sound of many waters. It doesn't mean that it sounded like a waterfall, uh, like incoherent and rumbling. But if you've ever been to a huge waterfall, you know that the sound that it makes is deafening. It drowns out anything else around it. And it certainly drowns out you trying to say something to your neighbor or anything that you're trying to say. So John is using this comparison to roaring waters simply to say that his voice was booming. It was overpowering. It overpowered anything that I could say. His voice sounded like the roar of many waters. You know, again, John is using the language that he had access to. He can't say, oh, his voice sounded just like an F-15 taking off. You know, if you've been close to an airplane, you know, the sound is deafening. It shakes you. And so that's the, the concept that we get. This is the same voice that called the universe into existence at the beginning. The voice of Jesus Christ. This is the same voice that will raise his children from the grave. And this is the same voice that issues orders of judgment on the unbelieving world. All of these, the voice of Jesus Christ as of roaring waters. 16, he had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp 
two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, He had in his right hand seven stars. We see in verse 20, um, just like the lampstands, the seven stars are explained to us. Jesus says that these seven stars represent the seven angels of the seven churches. And this brings us to a debated point in Scripture. Uh, The word angels in the Greek is agalos, which can mean angel in the sense that we would think of an angel, a heavenly being. But agalos can also simply mean a messenger or a pastor. And this is where some Christians are divided. Not everyone agrees on the interpretation here. Each of the letters to the seven churches also contain the address to the angel of the church of, insert your church's name, write. So to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write. And so we see without a doubt that these letters are addressed to a superintendent of these churches. Now, whether this is referring to a human superintendent, a pastor, or an angel looking over the churches, I'm not 100% sure. I will say the word agalos is used many, many times in Revelation. And the vast majority of those refer to actual angelic beings not referring to pastors. The only problem I see with this reference referring to angels is the fact that Jesus is correcting the congregation that they oversaw. Now, while I think angels is not necessarily a bad interpretation, I think that the local pastors actually fit better into this role. Um, of being corrected, and of being these stars, basically. So I tend to go with uh, the fact that these angels are referring to human local pastors. And I'll let you decide what you think. Our scripture tells us, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. Now, I don't think that this is literal, but it's another figure of speech. The word of God is this two-edged sword. And this view is supported in Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Also supported by Ephesians 6.17. And the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So um, in the Hebrews passage, the sword mentioned is a smaller type of sword. But... We see in Revelation, the word for sword changes. And this sword speaks of a large Thracian sword. There are records of this type of sword taking off limbs, decapitating people, and also splitting a man in half top to bottom. So this is a large weapon that's powerful when wielded correctly. And that's important. If you don't know how to use the weapon, it's basically a heavy object. 
that you got to lug around. But if you know how to use the word of God, it is sharp and powerful, uh, sharper than any two-edged sword, any weapon that man can devise. Now, the word of God, God's inspired word, is the measuring stick by which everything else and everyone else will be judged. It clearly defines right and wrong, and it clearly lays out the doctrine of salvation so that there is no excuse. If you have access to the word of God, you have the whole counsel of God, quite literally. The mouth of God, from which comes his word, uh, symbolized by the sword, will perform three major functions at the end. The first is to judge the unbeliever. John twelve forty eight, Jesus says, He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. Two, smites the earth. Isaiah 11.4 records, But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. And lastly, God will consume the Antichrist with the breath of his mouth. In 2 Thessalonians 2.8, we see, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. And that reference to the brightness of his coming leads very nicely um, into the next little snippet. And his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. In Matthew 17, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, the John that is writing, to a mountain, and he's transfigured before their eyes into his glorified state. In the physical description of Jesus in his glorified state found in Matthew 17, it is said that his face shone like the sun. And so this description of him is consistent from that account and from this account of the glorified Christ. His countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. John, the disciple, the apostle who had walked with Jesus almost his entire life. This guy who is so familiar with his Savior. He was the one who laid his head on Jesus' chest at the Last Supper. He was comfortable around Jesus. Now we see him falling at the feet of his Savior as dead. The holiness, the power, the glory 
of the risen, glorified Christ is so opposite to the fallen state of man. It's unbearable to any mortal. And we know from earlier in our text that John was in spirit for this. He was not in his body. It is kind of funny to me when you hear someone say, man, when I get to heaven, I've got to have a word with the big man. We've got to get some things straight. No, that is not how that whole thing's going to go down. No. If we see this description and we think that we're going to bow our chest up to him and say, hey, why'd you do this in my life? No, I, I don't approve of that. No, absolutely not. We will be falling at his feet. We will be worshiping his glory. There will be no attitude when we get to heaven. John, the apostle who maybe even was the most comfortable around Jesus, is now falling at his feet as dead. But do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Don't be afraid, John. It's me. It's Jesus. I am he who lives. Yes, I I was dead. I came to the earth. I did my redemptive work. But now I'm alive forevermore. The firstborn from the dead. The first one to raise from the dead who would never see death again. And behold, I am alive forevermore. That behold says, and look, look at me. I am alive forevermore. I'm no longer dead, and I'm no longer the servant. Yes, Jesus is the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. Yes, he came to serve, not to be served, during his incarnation. Now we see the glorified Christ. This is the Christ that is coming at his second advent. This is the Christ that we will see returning with a shout and a robe dipped in blood. He is coming back for judgment. He's coming to redeem his creation. And we look around today and we see all of this craziness. And you can flip on any news channel you'd like. I don't care if it's Fox, CNN, which side you pick. There's craziness in the world. It seems like we're out of control. You know, nobody can rein in what is going on. But we look at this picture of Christ. We look at his physical description, but also who he says he is. What he says he's going to do. We can look at this and be assured that there is someone on the throne. There is someone in control of everything that's happening right now. And that is so comforting to me. As I see the craziness, I see everything going on. There is someone who holds the key to hell and to death. And I have the keys of Hades and of death, says Jesus. 
in verse 19, he instructs John to write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. So this is the division that we have for us in the book of the book itself. And most books in the Bible don't come with this sort of nicely packaged outline for us. You know, we usually have to divide the book ourselves, say, this is this part, this is this part. Jesus does it here for us. That's so convenient. So we can look at what Jesus says and relate that to the book itself. Write the things which you have seen. That's chapter one. That's what John has seen. That is past tense. And the things which are. We currently live in this age of grace, the church age. And those are the things which are. That's also the time that John lived in. That is the present things. You see those in chapters 2 and 3 when Jesus addresses the churches. And the things which will take place after this. From chapters 4 on through the rest of the book, chapter 22, those are the things which are still yet to come. Those are the things which will take place after this. And this being the church age. You know, and I think that's pretty telling too uh, for a pre-tribulation rapture. The things that come after this church age. So when the church is taken out, then we see all the events of chapter four and on unfold. And I'm excited to get there in a few weeks from now. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am in control. I hold the keys to hell and death. I'm in control. Not the president. Doesn't matter what party they're from. Not the Fuhrer. Not the dictator. No one is in control but Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the one that makes intercession for us. He is the one who supplied his own blood to redeem us. And he is the one superintending us right now. He's looking over his church. He's walking amongst his church. The lampstands. Jesus is with us. And he is in control. Verse 20 Jesus actually spells out these symbols that he gives John. The mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. So he's just telling him what he's talking about now. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. We've already talked about that word, agalos, angels, of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands, which you saw are the seven churches. And a lot of times in Revelation, there will be this same kind of thing happen where a symbol is given and then later on it's explained and it shows you what that symbol was representing. So here we have it. The seven stars are the angels. I would say the pastors of these seven churches and the seven lampstands, which you saw, are the seven churches. 
Jesus walking in the midst of his church, trimming the wicks. It was the high priest's job. So back in the Old Testament, God gave the job of tending to the lampstand in the tabernacle to Aaron, the high priest. It was none of the other priest's job to take care of the lampstand. Do you see the picture there? Jesus is tending to his lampstands, his churches. And that's the wonderful, miraculous picture that we have in this scripture. Jesus is our great high priest. He's looking over us, and he is ultimately in control. Amen. What an encouragement for us this morning. And as we close our study, let's do so in a word of prayer. Let's address this one who is in control.